So this morning I got up, and uh, my dog had to go to the bathroom. She usually gets me up quite early because for some reason she has a bladder issue at 6 a.m. every day. And I go to put her in the backyard, and I swear I thought it was a car alarm going off. It was a bird. The bird's all, tweet, tweet, bop, 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 whoop, whoop, whoop. And I'm like going, what, what is it? It was a bird. That's when they make BB guns and cats. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in... Oh, there's no Bibles in the back. Where are they? What? Oh, he's going to get some. There will be Bibles in the back in just a moment. That's nice. I'm glad we gave out Bibles. That's cool. Uh, if you don't own one, you can have one as soon as they get back. If you forgot one, you can use one. We are using a version called the ESV, the English Standard Version. If you go to our website, ourelement.org, you've got a whole write-up on why we're using the uh, ESV. Also, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. If you have a smartphone, you get an app called Uversion. Click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get all the, all the sermon notes, the questions, and the Bible verses as we go along as well. I have kind of one and a half things to, to tell you about. The, the one big thing is we have this, this thing coming up next Saturday called Girls for Change. Uh, the four in Girls for Change is actually the number four because it's all like cool and hip and Anyway, this, they're doing a lot of different things. But this thing next Saturday is a one-day conference, and it's essentially helping girls through the Navigate Adolescence, going you know, like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. I watch Sesame Street. I can count. I know. Uh, and, and they're helping them go from uh, these young girls into young women. And so what we would encourage you guys to do, if you know any girls those age, go to girlsforchange.org, girls for change.org and there's a application on there have them download that and it's free it's free so just have them come and show up uh, again if you know any girls it'd be a great thing for them to be a part of so have them go to that and the second thing that's just my half one is that we throughout the summer do this thing called film and theology we really love it because we love movies here because movies are awesome uh, so kind of funny last night we went and saw uh, Super 8 See, yeah it's alright you know. <laughs> anyway, so some of you film and theology, show some movies and talk about how it all relates to the gospel. Our first one starts on July 1st. We're doing the Neutron movie as the first one. And we don't cut movies. It's not like, oh, they said a swear word. We're going to cut it out. After Super 8, we were talking, and one of the people we were with said, they go, man, there's kind of a lot of swearing in that in the beginning with those kids. And I go, what? I, I didn't even notice. So apparently I'm a terrible heathen, and I don't even notice that stuff anymore. So when we show movies, she'll be like, there was no swearing in that. What are you talking about? I don't, I don't know. But you should come there. They're, they're, they're a lot of fun, especially as we talk about the movies after they're over. Why don't you stand with me for reading God's Word? This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand your word as it has been given to us and that we would live out lives that are equipped for the good works that you have prepared for us to do, that we'd be able to speak openly and honestly into the culture in which we are today, showing your great love and who you are and how you call your children to live so it brings great glory and honor to you. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in the third week of the Song of Solomon. This is our summer of love. It's kind of cool. Uh, as we start this week, I've got to remind you what I said the very, very first week of this, and this is our central premise, that sex is not God. Yes, our culture gives our money to it, their time to it, they study it, their pictures and magazines, they worship it as a God, but for you and I, 
Jesus is God. Sex is not God. The second thing, though, that we must remember is sex is not dirty. Many people, because our culture is so rampantly sexual, they say, oh, well, sex must be dirty. Sex is not dirty. That's a bad overreaction to sex is God. And what we need to come at it with the point of view is that sex is a gift. It is given to us by God to steward, to enjoy, protect, and in the context of marriage, to share frequently. It is to be treasured and saved and given and cultivated in marriage. Now, if you are single, this relates to you because 93% of you will get married. Uh, we also have some people who come here a little bit older and they are actually widows or widowers. And this is also good for you to hear because you must be able to speak into the cultural context of our day, speaking truth. And we want everybody that comes to Element to be involved in what's called a gospel community. Uh, some churches call them small groups. We don't call it that because that's not a good enough name. These are groups centered around the gospel where we learn to do lives together and we want in these groups to have people from very young to very old all coming together doing life together and so this is good for you to understand so when you are in a group like this you can speak intelligently into this conversation so as we progress to the book you need to keep in mind that you can't just read this through the western lens of American culture the song of Solomon is nearly 3,000 years old it is Hebraic it is Eastern it is nonlinear it is passionate it is experiential and a lot of Christians don't know what to do with it because it's just so real. Throughout church history, this book has been written more about and shrouded more in controversy than almost any other book because of what our culture has done to sexuality. But as Christians, we are not called to react. We are simply called to know what we believe. The sexual cultural context of our day should not surprise us. Cultures have always been overtly sexual, though not biblical. And so we need to come in and speak what the truth is into this. Uh, sex is not a means to God, but it is a way to bring glory to God when done in a way that honors Him. In Hebrews 3.14, it actually indicates that the marriage bed is symbolic of an altar, and sex is an act of worship between a man and a wife. When Today, when we deal with human sexuality and married love, we are not dealing simply with biological and sociological byproducts of an evolutionary process. We are dealing with realities within the created order that had divine origins and divine purposes, that the earth is supposed to speak of heaven because it came from the Creator's hand. And to treat sexual love apart from the divine intent is to miss the glory of why God created it. And so when the ancient rabbis and early church fathers read the book of the Song of Solomon, it was so open and frank and honest, they didn't know what to do with it. So they reinterpreted the entire book as allegory. We will not do that at Element. Uh, there is some allegory in the book, but the primary point is love between a man and a woman and God and how it all comes together. As we continue to study the book, you will see elements of the character of God in the relationship between the man and the woman. But the primary purpose, again, is love of love between a man and a woman, what God calls us to, and with God actually in the middle of that process. Because the church for far too long has given the dialogue about sexuality over to other people. We must understand that we are to speak into this, that we are to be like the scriptures which are frank and open and honest, and they never shut up about it. We must always steer the conversation back to where it needs to be. And so if you are married, you must be honest about sexuality with your spouse. If you are single, you must learn to view sexuality and nakedness and physical pleasure all biblically how God intends it. Now today we start with Solomon. Uh, he is the he in the book. Last week we started with the she, which was the woman. Today's the he, and two weeks after Father's Day we'll get to the we. So it's the she, the he, the we. I thought that was very creative, but first service didn't think so either. Like, whatever. Uh, Solomon. Solomon is conceived by David and Bathsheba. This is a crazy story of David and Bathsheba. 
uh, apparently it, it talks about how during the time of the year that men go off to war and so apparently on your calendar at some point they'll be like oh we go off to war today every year you circle it on your outlook bing it pops up and reminds you on your smartphone go to war okay got it and so they all go out to war but David doesn't go he, he's one of their best warriors and he stays behind which shows that when men get idle bad things happen so the whole army's off fighting he's walking around top of his palace looks over sees a naked woman he's like hey she's hot has her brought to him he has sex with her they conceive a child and David goes oh that was a bad idea so then what he does is he sends for her husband to come back from the front line and says okay uh, you need to go home and have sex with your wife and the guy basically says no all my guys are out fighting I am not gonna have this well they're out there doing that it's not fair to them and so David gets another brilliant idea. He sends him back to the front line and says, take where the fighting is the fiercest, place this guy there, have the army back away from him, and then he will die. And that's what happens. His plan works out. Just crazy what people do when they're idle. Don't be idle. So what happens is David and Bathsheba, with this baby that was conceived by them, it, it actually gets born. Now, in this process, the prophet Nathan comes up to David and he points out David's sin in such a way that he sees this. And David repents and he's like, I cannot believe what I have done. And then what happens is right after the child is born, the child actually gets very sick. In 2 Samuel 12, 16 and 17, it says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So David has a lot of grief. God, please don't let my child die. He's in a state of repentance right now going, I, I have sinned. Please take care of my child. Verse 18, on the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now what you see in the end of this is that David understands the repentance he should have had, but instead of blaming God at this point for the child's death, he actually goes and he worships God in the midst of his pain. He embraces his loss and goes to worship God. He never forgot this child because the pain was too great. It actually in his life makes him more compassionate and caring, able to see the needs of others better. And David goes to church, embraces his loss, renews his hope in God. Now, what normally happens when a couple loses a child, whether it be an infant or a teenager, is that they begin to deify the child that died. And if there are other siblings in the mix, the other siblings feel like they can never measure up. Because it doesn't matter if they're a teenager and they're like in jail half the time. It's like, oh, but they died and they just all of a sudden become angelic. And so the other kids feel like they can never measure up. What you have to understand about Solomon is that Solomon is the second child of David and Bathsheba. He is born after all this takes place. He is born after this child dies. And so you don't know what his childhood was like if he ever lived with this looming uh, death of a sibling over him. You don't know, but what you do see is that in the beginning of his life he starts out well, but eventually he does not learn from his dad's mistakes and he goes the same direction. He starts with the heart for God, a young king with a lot of wisdom. This is when I believe he writes the Song of Solomon, when he writes Proverbs, and then he goes totally off the rails with 700 wives and 300 sexual concubines, which are not for harvest in case you were wondering. <laughs> so you guys are slow. At the end of his life, he comes back again and he realizes that without God, everything is meaningless. It's, it's a vapor. And then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And I think in the Song of Solomon, it shows that in our lives, we only have one true great love. Your body throughout your life can be given to multiple partners, but your heart goes to one other person. And who it goes to is a choice. Love is a choice. We are told that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us as a people, meaning that he came and sought us out and loved us. His heart goes towards us. It is a choice. Many times we feel like love is, is, oh, it's just the feelings and I feel this way. No, love is a choice. Now, you may be in this room and you may have been divorced at some point in your life. Don't think that I am not saying God cannot redeem you in a situation, in a remarriage. God can make that one true love in your heart for that other person. God can come in and redeem any situation. There are always a new day. In Solomon's day, Solomon was the richest man alive. He was the most powerful. He considered the most brightest. He spent seven years building God's temple, and yet he turns around and spends 13 years building his own home. Yeah, a little crazy. You know, this could be an MTV Cribs. It's like, I'm Solomon, come to my house, check it out. People come from around the world to seek his counsel. And I love how Solomon, he is raised at court as a young man, has all this stuff, and a simple country girl comes in, and she steals his heart. Now, today, again, is going to be very practical like last week and very practical like it will be in, in two weeks. And today, we're going to talk a lot about guys because it's talking about Solomon. I'm going to talk to you about my wife and how she stole my heart. And what I would like you to do as I tell you this little story is think back, if you were married, how you met your spouse. You know, maybe the first date and, and all the feelings and excitement that was in there and, and what drew you to them. Think about that. I met my wife when I was 21 years old. I married her when I was 22. She showed up to this Bible study that I was attending, and she was immediately surrounded by evil vultures trying to pick her up. That's what I call other guys. They're all evil vultures. Tilly, one of my very good friends, told me that she was an English teacher, and I thought, great, she can help me with my English paper because I was taking English 101 for the fifth time. And so I'm like, yay. Now, I am totally surprised when I walked up and talked to her. She didn't laugh at me, just tell me to go away because I was sporting a mullet. And MC Hammer Pants. Yeah. Now, this is how sorry of a dude I was. Our first date, it, which kind of wasn't really a date, but it was a date, she drove. I brought three of my friends. Y- yeah. You see, good. Ah. Uh, yeah. That, that is a horrible thing. I'll tell you, ladies, if I was giving you advice and you were dating me, I would tell you to throw me back because I wasn't done cooking yet. I need to keep going. I didn't deserve my wife. I actually still don't deserve her. At the end of our date, she throws up, which I thought was probably my fault because it's just me. I thought it was over. But we keep talking and talking. After three months, I am so impulsive, I ask her to marry me. Another three months later, we get married. And it will be 19 years in October uh, of this year. <laughs> it is so weird. It's like, oh, wow, you made it. <laughs> Yay for you. So I, I, will, I will give you some things that my wife and I learn from marriage. The first thing is this, is that marriage is hard work. It is hard work. We have learned that marriage is for happiness and holiness, but holiness before happiness. If you think in any way that marriage is going to make you happy, I will tell you, two sinners do not live happily ever after. They just don't. Two sinners have conflict and friction and difficulty. If you think marriage is to make you happy, you will be sorely disappointed, and you will think you married the wrong person. And it's always weird that people always seem to think that they themselves are not the right person. It's always the other person who's the problem. Well, it could just be you, just being honest and letting you know. If you begin to look at marriage from the perspective that marriage is to make us holy, then when difficulty comes, as it will, you will not give up because you know the ultimate purpose for marriage is still in effect. It is still in effect. And God uses the hardship in a marriage to continue to sanctify us as a people. The second thing we learn is that marriage is a ministry. 
to each other. You can stay single and serve Jesus, or you can get married and serve Jesus. And I believe when you get married and serve Jesus, it helps you to understand what it means when Jesus calls the church his bride, because you will grow in holiness together. I will tell you, I love my wife like there is no tomorrow, and if you ever hurt her, I would do prison ministry from the inside, because, <laughs> because I will kill you. And my wife gives me this little note after the service. She goes, you can't go to, to prison. You're far too pretty. I'm like, are you saying I can't take care of myself? You know, that's, that's the deal. I, I, I say this in the most loving, loving way possible for you, but she is my favorite person on the planet. You do not even rate a close second, all right? She, I love her more than anything. And the third thing is that marriage is about getting and growing old together. The goal for my wife and I is to be old, wrinkled, and happy. All right, statistically speaking, do you know what year of marriage people experience the most happiness? Anybody? 35. 35 years. Sociologically, the longer you are married, the happier it gets. Sociologists have shown that it's not even until years 9 to 14 into a marriage that you're even able to think of your spouse in an unselfish way. It takes nine years to go from me to we. The first nine is about what do I want? What can you give me? What, what can I get? You know, and after a decade, you shift to how can I serve you, honor you, give to you, as you both have an attitude that becomes, becomes more and more beautiful as you guys connect together. The problem is that most couples today divorce before they get to year nine, and then they've got to start all over, and they do it all over again. I will tell you, I know some of you have been married more than this nine to 14 years, and you're thinking, it's tough. I'm still not finding the happiness yet, right? I, I know, it, it's coming. But I, I will tell you that some seasons in your marriage you just have to get through. You just, it's like a bad stretch of road, and you've got to get to the other side. It is not pleasant, but you persevere. You get through it by having an attitude of a servant, by giving to the other person, and realizing you are not a god to be worshipped, but you are a servant, and you give to the other person. Now, this is how I feel about my wife. How does Solomon feel about his bride? Well, this is what you see today, and it's awesome. This is his love song to her. It's not in chronological order, so I'll jump around just a tiny bit, but I trust that you're good enough to follow me on this. So if you have a Bible, open to Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 8. This is where the he starts. Just let you get there. See, you should have already been there because you know where we're going anyway. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, and you've got to stop right there because this is amazing. It's like, oh, you are most beautiful. Guys, you need to say this all the time. Oh, most beautiful among women. And when you start to feel a little awkward, that's when it's just getting good. You just say it all the time. My wife and I were watching this movie a little bit ago called The Time Traveler's Wife. If you haven't watched it, spoiler alert, here's it coming. I'm going to tell you how it works. Uh, this is the premise is Henry, he's a, he's a child. He's about six years old. He's driving around in the car with his mom, who's a singer. She's trying to teach him how to sing. And she, they get in a terrible car accident. His mother dies, and he somehow becomes a time traveler. He cannot control it. And so the most of the movie is him jumping through 40 years of time, interacting with his one great love, Claire. Eventually, they, they have a daughter. He never even gets to really see his daughter, except for one time jump, he meets her. And she finds out she can control the time jumping. And he says, well, how do you control it? And his daughter says, you've got to learn how to sing which goes all the way back to his childhood trauma. So Henry at one point see, actually sees himself dying on the ground knowing he's going to die, and instead of figuring out how to sing and control the time jumping, he dies. He leaves his wife and his daughter alone. And after it's over, my wife and I were kind of cleaning up the house and doing stuff, and I stop her in the hallway, and I go, you know what? And she goes, when I said, for you, I would have learned how to sing. That, 
That's the stuff you need to say. You need to say, oh, most beautiful among women. Oh, you are so hot. You are so sexy. You are the most wonderful woman I've ever met in my life. You're like, hot, hey, hottie, hot. <laughs> Babe, super sweet. You know, when you, when you feel embarrassed, you're scratching the surface. You're working in all day. You, you wake up in the morning. Oh, it's morning with the super hot. Babe. What's going on? She's like, morning breath, go away. And she goes like this. When it comes to Christmas, you're, oh, Christmas sweets. Oh, they're not as sweet as you, baby. Fourth of July is around the corner. You watch the fireworks. You look at her and you say, oh, they're not as hot or as awesome as you, baby. You say this over and over. Oh, most beautiful among women. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. These are some valuable things that you and I can learn as men how to speak to our wives. The first one is this. You must understand that she needs to be a priority. He is a busy king. She's a country girl. And last week, you see that she's like, where are you going to be? I'll meet you there. I'll give and give and give to you. And this week, you see him giving to her. God has called men to work. And I tell you a lot that men need to work. But she needs to be a priority in that schedule. There must always be room in your life for your wife. If you don't leave room for her, then she will start nagging. I don't see you. We don't spend time together. I don't feel like you love me. And then you will get frustrated because you don't feel respected. You must be wise and integrate your lives together. You put your schedules out. You look at them. You carve out time to be together. Do you know how you can pray for her? Do you know what concerns she has? Do you know what you can help her with? If you know she has something coming up that's very important, do you ask her, how did it go? My, my wife is a nurse at the hospital. And I'm not going to, if you see her, be nice to her. And if she puts your IV in wrong, just be like, oh, that's great. Just fill up the arm with fluid. Just be nice to her, okay? Well, I'll come and find you. Uh, and, and so she's working in this, this red section for like the first time she's done it this week. And she sends me a text. She goes, I'm so busy, I'm in red. And so I made sure when she got home, I said, how did it go? You know, what, did you have anything you got real concerned about? You get stressed out? You know, how, how did it go? Let me know. And, so, and, and we talk about it, and, and I get to connect with her in that way. I ask her. Because if you do not learn how to integrate your lives together, you will not become the one flesh that Jesus calls you to be. And if you don't start prioritizing each other, you won't even acknowledge it until life gets too stressful and then you blow up at each other because you didn't do the groundwork in the beginning. You must do it in the beginning. I recommend you all have a date night. And on the date night, you don't do this on the date night. The date night is for you to be like, oh, most beautiful among women. That is the date night. Because other things happen when you do that. It's good. The second thing, the second thing that needs to happen is she needs compliments. She needs compliments. He does this by telling her she's like a female horse. I do not recommend that you do that, okay? <laughs> Solomon says, Solomon actually has 12,000 horses and 1,500 chariots. This is an amazing fleet of prized possessions. And he says, you're like a mare that walks among 12,000 guy horses. And when a mare walks in front of 12,000 guy horses, what do the guy, ho guy horses do? They're like, oh, oh. And he says, honey, you are so hot. Every guy thinks you're hot. Every guy thinks you're hot, but you're mine. And I love you. When you come around, I am interested in you and what you are doing. I can't contain myself. Your wives need to know 
that they are exciting and desirable and loved. And I know some guys will say, but she is not. Well, you tell her she is, and you treat her like she is, and she will start to act like it. You nurture her, you care for her, you bless her, you speak words of honor to her. That is what Solomon does. The third thing is that she needs to know she is like no other person in your eyes, that she stands over and above everybody else. For here, it's a nickname. He calls her my love. You will see this throughout the Song of Solomon, this nickname he has for my love, my love, my love. He always says it. That's a good nickname, my love. I am forever trying to find a good nickname for my wife, and I've always got a new one, and I throw it out, and she's like, really? You're going to go with that? And I'm like, okay, I'll try another one. You know, and, the, and, and I just keep trying. Some of you guys, you have bad nicknames for your spouse. You get angry, you're getting a fight, and words come out of your mouth. You sh- ugly, moron, stupid idiot. You should never... Seriously, guys, just go in the, in the garage, grab a hammer, and smack yourself in the face. Because that's all you're doing when you're calling her names. You do not call her names. Sociologists tell you that we only nickname in a good way those that we love the most. And she should have a good name from you, one that you share between the two of you. And the fourth thing is that she needs a provider. She needs a provider. Many single guys, you run around working on your pickup lines and, and your clothes and your car and your dance moves. I got a pickup line for you, just a single guy, okay? You want to pick up on a lady? Are you ready? Ready? I have a job. <laughs> it's a great line. It's a great line. Most women actually find that attractive. A woman should never hear, oh, my mom has a job and I live with her. Okay, That is not a good pickup line. This woman is poor. She grows up poor. She doesn't have much. she got calluses on her hands. She is sunburnt from the sun, dirt under her nails. And he says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your your neck with string of jewels. Where did she get those jewels? From him, a guy with a job. That's where she got them. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In our culture, men are so confused. They don't work hard, they don't provide, and they wonder why they feel so empty inside. Because God made you to work. That is what God made you to do. And men, you will feel like you're actually doing what you're supposed to do when you work. Now, I know our economy is tough. And I know there's some crazy stuff that goes on in the midst of it. But you should be looking for creative ways to try and provide. Now, is it a sin for women to work? Not at all. My my wife has a job. But I think when kids are small, mom needs to be mom, dad needs to be dad. Guys, again, I know it's hard, but we must find ways to provide. Provide does not mean that you give them everything they want or everything they wish that they had. Sometimes in order to provide, you go without certain things, but you provide. This is a thing that is very unpopular in our culture today when I tell men to provide. But you know what is popular in our culture? Divorce. And that's not popular with God. So we're going to go with what God says. God designed the family in a way that it is strongest. And he says the guy needs to learn how to provide. Men should aspire to this. There's a study that came out in September of 2008. It tracked more than 12,000 people that started in 1979. So they started with 14 to 22-year-olds. And now they are 43 to 51 years old. And they found that those men that believe that they are called to be providers actually earn twelve dollars to $14,000 more a year than those who don't. If you go to our website, ourelement.org forward slash SOS for Song of Solomon, there's an articles page. We put the link up there and you actually go and read the article. I, I think men, when they take responsibility, they feel it and they work harder to be providers. I'm not saying you have to be rich, but God does call you to strive to provide. We're going to skip verse 11. We'll do that in two weeks. Verse 12, she again speaks, but she's talking to him and it all goes together, so we're going to go with that. Verse 12, while the king was on his couch... <laughs> It's biblical. My nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me. And my wife, I said, sachet. And she goes, it's sachet. I'm like, oh. 
himself. A sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now, I, I might get myself in trouble a little bit with this again, but ladies, your men need what's called an Engedi. Now, last week I told the guys they're supposed to ask you the questions. You know, what can I do to make myself more attractive to you? And is there anything in my character that needs to change so I can be more attractive to you? And so this is assuming the guys have asked you these questions first. Guys, if you didn't, repent and do it. Because if we're going to make her ask you this question today, you need to be stepping out first because God calls you to step out first. Now, in Getty, this is a desert oasis. It's a place of life and health and trees and water in the midst of a harsh, sandy desert death. Men, when they are working hard, feel like much of their life is desert, and they need to come home to an Engedi, a wife, a home that you make together that is a place of refreshment and hope. He lays here on his couch, and he eats. Apparently, it's biblical. Sometimes you just got to let him do it. I suggest cookies and cake batter ice cream and stir fry, because they're all handed down from the glory of God from heaven. Now, women, I, this takes into account, again, your husbands have been asking you the hard questions like, okay, so what can I do to speak truth into your life? How can I love you? How can I give to you? And when you are doing that, she should want to be this Engedi for you. And when you are, he will bend over backwards for you. You know, when, when they walk in the door from, from working all day, you don't start with the honey-do list. You don't, you don't start with the, hey, the kids are terrible, they're just like you. Oh, you've got to spank him and ground her and, oh, and paint the house and the grass is too tall. That's coming home to hell, not coming home to Engedi. He needs to come home to Engedi. Now, I know I talk about my, life, my wife a lot, but I'll just tell you a little more about her. She surprises me all the time. Uh, I might surprise you. I work a lot. I give a lot of my life. To you guys. Sometimes I go home and I'm just spent. And we don't have kids and my wife works too and she gets tired. But if we're home together and we're sitting there, she's like, oh, do you want something to eat? Do you? I'm just like, oh. I mean, seriously, she is in Getty. She cares about me and she takes care of me. And when she does this, I'm always like, you know, what would you like me to do? She can literally ask me for anything. Well, except she wants this cat that's at the shelter. And I'm like, uh, you know, anything but the cat, you know, anything you can have. We're probably even going to get in the dumb cat. But, you know, <laughs> But, but she is so good, I actually want to give her anything. I mean, that's, that's just how good. Who wouldn't want to do that? You know, and so the question on the way home is, women, you must ask your men, what does Engedi look like for you? What does our home need to be when you come home to it? Now, again, guys, if you're smart, you will turn around and ask the question as well. You'll say, so what does it look like for you, honey? Right? Because... That's almost beautiful among women, right? So the, you, you got you to say that back to her. And sometimes women are like, oh, the bedroom's a mess. I hate it that way. Uh, I, I know one woman who, who said, well, what I'd really like to do is tuck the kids into bed, and then you and I go sit in the bathtub together. <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, right? That's in Getty for me, too. It's, that's awesome. Okay. It's the same place. <laughs> so the woman, she says this. She goes, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. And when you go verse by verse, you hit things like this, which is great, because most churches never even talk about this stuff. But here we go. The early church fathers didn't know what to do with this. Oh, breasts, what do we do? They turn it all into allegory. Early church fathers, this is what they said. It's a picture of God and his bride, the church. The bride's breast is the church from which we feed. It's the two testaments, the Old and the New Testament. It's the twin precepts of love for God and love for neighbor. It's the blood and water that, initially, that eventually pours out of Jesus' side. Gregory of Nyssa found in them the outer man and the inner man united in one sentient being. You know what? Maybe it's just boobs, okay? Maybe it just is, and that's why it's there, and it's okay. All right, ladies, what she is saying is your body is a gift. 
you share it with your husband, and that to him is part of Engedi. This nard, this sachet of myrrh, this is a perfume that would melt off body heat, that would give off its smell. And she says, I know you like spending time there. It's like, <laughs> praise God. It's in the Bible. It's wonderful. <laughs> the Bible talks about this in various places. You should memorize them all. It's, it's all good. And again, this is why the church fathers had such trouble with these verses, because this is Engedi, how a woman shares her body with her husband and how a husband shares his with his wife. Verse 15, he speaks again after she says this. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. He just keeps it coming and coming and coming. It's like, it's not just you look nice. And then years later, you never say anything else again. She needs to see herself through your eyes. So you continue to say it over. You cannot be like a frat dude trying to pick up on a chick. Hey, you look nice. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. You, do you like her clothes, her hair, her makeup, the way she laughs, her shoes? You let her know everything all the time. A lot of you guys, you're watching basketball right now. Football's coming up. You know what? Do you learn nothing from the announcers? You need to be just like these announcers. Hey, that's great. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, you smell good, just like Pop-Tarts. You know, you just, you just keep throwing it out there all the time. You let her hear it. And I did say Pop-Tarts because they do smell good. You know, and he just keeps throwing it out on And that's what you do. You're running commentary. You must learn from this. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And doves have one mate their entire life. They represent purity and, and fidelity. And he says, you are the one for me. You are the one. When I am with you, everything is going to be okay. And so she responds and she says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. And a lot of people go, well, That's just weird at the end of saying how great he is. You know what she just did? She said, You've provided for me. You've given me a house. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother. That means you leave your mom and dad's house, you get a job, you get your own place, you pick a church, you get a career, and you go, and then he holds fast to his wife and they become one flesh. The problem is that nobody obeys this process anymore. Moses shows this threefold process. Jesus reiterates it. So does Paul. Those are three big guns, in case you don't know. Prophets, apostles, and the incarnate God in the flesh all say, grow up, get married, have sex. That is the process. Grow up, get married, have sex. You don't need to be rich, but you provide the best way you can. Most women want a place of their own, a place they can nest. When my wife and I first got married, we had nothing. Our couch was a futon. Our bed was water, which I don't recommend. just terrible. Our fridge was used. We had this little place. It was like 500 bucks a month. Raised foundation, tiny thin walls, bugs, lawn, no sprinklers in the lawn. We had to water it, and that's a whole other story in their side. And then we get married. Uh, we had this place, and then after we were married three months, we moved to Iowa. Uh, I don't recommend that for any of you, by the way. So we moved to Iowa, and we got this place, 600 bucks a month. Flooded basement in the winter, hot in the summer. It's awful. We moved to Arizona. We got a place for like 650 a month. It was like 950 square feet, two stories. So it's like you know 400 and something square feet, top and bottom. It's tiny. The kitchen had a shower in the corner. It's like, oh, fry the eggs and wash my hair. And it was tiny. <laughs> tiny little place, couches in front of it. The, the only heater in the house was this little wood stove that sat in the corner. So we moved back to California. Uh, we get another house. And then a few years after that, we got a different house that we rented. And then we bought our first house. And it was 1,400 square feet. And we lived there for a few years. And then just last November, my wife and I bought a foreclosure. And we, we drove by it the first time. And she's like, oh, that, that's, that's cool. We can't afford it. And so we left. And then two weeks later, she goes, I want to drive by there again. So we drove by the house again. She's all, I really want to go inside. And I'm like, oh, 
really. So I, we call up a realtor. We, we go inside. We look at the house, and we bought this foreclosure. And I will tell you, my wife said, we are not moving again. She said, this, this is the house. I'm going to nest. I'm going to stay here. It took us 18 years to get there. So, guys, one of the questions you should probably ask is, what does she want? What does she want her house to look like one day? And then you work towards it. Again, it took us 18 years to get there, so it's not going to be tomorrow. All right? So, ladies, give them some time to get there. You might have to move a few times before you get in there. But you ask, and you figure it out, and you work towards it. She says, our couch is, our, our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are prime. She says, I love our home because it's you and I that make it a home. And again, I want to just run back to this before I let you guys out of here this morning, is that the question needs to be asked, what needs to change in our home currently for it to be a home, for our home to be an Engedi? You must ask the question. She says, chapter 2, verse 1, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. That is a plain flower, a wildflower. She says, I don't know why you give me all this stuff. I don't know why you're so infatuated with me. I am just a plain compared to everybody else. And he says in verse 2, as a lily among the brambles, so is my love among the young women. He says, no, you stand out. You are unique. And this is why I love you. His heart is for her. His heart loves her. Her. Many women don't understand the gift that they are, and men, you must tell them over and over. This is one of the reasons you provide, so they know how wonderful they are to you. You need to say, you are great. I love coming home to you. I pride and give and share and love because I love you so much. That's what this looks like. Now, why is this deeply spiritual? Because it is deeply practical. I mentioned last week that the divorce rate inside the church is like 50%. It is the same on the outside of the church. But what if the divorce rate in the church was 5%? Don't you think people would flock to find out how their marriages stay together? And this is what they would need to hear. These things, the honesty from Scripture about how we are supposed to live and learn because we are called to be light in the world. You know, communion. Uh, I usually talk about different things of what communion means. But today I'm going to tell you I think communion represents repentance for us. We need to repent in the places in our lives where we have not been the Engedi for the other person. If you're a guy who didn't ask your wife those questions I told you asked last week, repent, okay, and ask them those questions. Because if you want them to be that Engedi, you need to give to them as well. You've got to step out and go first. Our great God goes first for us, and so he calls men and the marriages to step out and go first as well. So guys, ask your wives, in case you weren't here, you know, what, what about me that do you not find attractive? What do I need to change in my appearance? And secondly, what about my character needs to change for you to find me more attractive? And then, ladies, today you need to say, what needs to change for our home to become in Getty? So it can be this place of refreshment. And listen, and begin to do these things because this will make your marriage strong. As we come to communion, you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, represents his blood that was shed for you and I because that is a place of repentance, a place of resetting to understand what God has called us to as his people. The band's going to come up, and they will do a couple songs. And as they do these songs, I ask God before you take communion, God, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to change? What questions do I need to ask in my home for it to become the Engedi it needs to be? Uh, or worship through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you want to pray with them or you and your spouse want to pray with them, they would love to pray with you. They'd love to introduce you to Jesus Christ is because, again, as I tell you every week, none of this through Song of Solomon is going to make any sense to you if you don't know who Jesus Christ is. You need to bow your knee and your heart and your life to him and live and walk with him as Lord of your life. And then this all makes perfect sense. 
Uh, we'll worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then part of our worship. And there's some food and stuff in the back. We put the food there, not so you can graze, but so you can actually meet some other people and talk and get to know. Because we believe that God intends for us to do life in community with each other. Yes, it's relationship with him and us, but it's also not lived out on an individual basis. It's lived out in the community that we are involved in and part of. So we would encourage you in the back to meet some people if you haven't met anybody, to sign up for a gospel community. We'll get you connected into one, and hopefully then we can grow into who God calls us to be. God has given us many great gifts. And for a lot of you in here who are married, it's the person sitting right next to you is the greatest gift he ever gave you. And so you need to live and act like it. Let's pray. Father, this morning... I do thank you for being so gracious to us as a people, for giving us things that we don't deserve. Mostly the salvation that we have because of the grace of your Son. But God, you call us to live out our salvation by what we do. And so I ask that our lives would reflect who you are that for those of us who are married, that the relationship between us and our spouse would be something that brings you great glory. That we would repent of the ways where we are not giving to our spouse in ways that we are supposed to. And that we would learn how to be a servant and we would learn how to give. For those couples in here who are really struggling right now, Father, I ask that you would give them both servants' hearts that they would both, instead of looking at how they've been treated in the past, they would look at how in the future they can treat the other person better as a great gift given by you. For those in this room who are single, I ask that you would give them great hope and great perseverance to wait and hold themselves pure for the day that they say, I do. For the men in this room, God, I ask you would convict us to be providers, to care for those entrusted to us by you, and that you, again, would gain great glory and honor by how your men reflect you and how we work. Father, this morning, in our worship, not just in the songs that we sing, but in what we do, we do it all to glorify you. Thank you for being so good to us. Amen.